Welcome to the Get Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Liz McGavro, and I'm obsessed with all things writing, creativity, and telling your stories in your authentic voice, because I believe a good story can change the world. Ever since I was a little girl with my nose in a book, I dreamed of being an author. I wanted to see my books in bookstores everywhere. I wanted to talk about books. I wanted to soak up everything about the craft. My celebrity crushes were mostly authors, and I could feel in my bones that the writer's life was my destiny. Fast forward to today. Along with my alter ego, Kate Conti, I'm an Agatha Award-nominated best-selling author with three mystery series, but it wasn't all smooth sailing along the way. I experienced many setbacks, crushing self-doubt, a lot of career detours, and I even lost my voice a few times when I let the world get in my way. Until I learned that writing was so much more than just a skill set you learned and developed over time. It's also an inside job that flourishes when you heal all the wounds that are stifling your creativity, which is no easy task. So if you're a writer of any kind, or if you've always wanted to write but aren't sure where to start, this is the place for you, my friend. We're going to talk about all things writing process, craft, strategies to help you get writing and stay writing, the daunting world of agents, editors, and publishing. And because I'm using my authentic voice, I'm going to throw in a little woo-woo for you too. So let's get writing, shall we? host, Liz McGavro, and I have such a fun guest for you today. Dick Wybrow is a best-selling author of more than a dozen humorous supernatural thrillers. He's a former stand-up comedian and a major market radio host. He's also worked in TV. Um, and like he says, he spent the majority of his life avoiding proper jobs. I love that. His latest novel, Kane, has been a top Amazon's bestseller list since its publication. He just released book three in the series in December. So we cover everything from how Dick used stand-up comedy as a way of testing his story ideas out while he worked on getting published, to how he creates a cross-genre series that flips all kinds of rules on their heads, to how he motivates himself to keep going when the going or the writing gets tough. I love getting this kind of perspective from other writers because no matter what we write, how long we've been writing, how we publish, we share so many challenges and there are so many opportunities to just learn from each other. I love it. So I had a really fun time talking to Dick. I hope you love our conversation as well. So let's jump in. Hey, Dick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And uh, welcome from New Zealand, where I'm speaking to you from the future. It, <laughs> it's not only it's summer here right now, yeah. which you've got to be jealous because it's quite warm. Uh, but we are a day ahead of everybody. Mm. I mean, we're like, we're like, when New Year strikes, you can see that on CNN and everything. We're like one of the first places in the world to shoot up fireworks. I mean, New Zealand's now fireworks, so it's kind of muted. Yeah. <laughs> but we're, we're in the future, but everybody here is sworn to secrecy. I love we're it. not allowed to tell you what's about to happen. So <laughs> sorry. I can say, I can say, stay away from Steve. I, as much as you can, just avoid Steve. That's all I can say. <laughs> It's not really a that's not really a future sort of thing. It's just more of a general rule. Got it. 
<laughs> I've just not had great luck with Steve's over the years. So that's just my own bias. Got it. Yeah, I have a good friend who lives in Australia, so she's always talking to me from the future. It's pretty funny. And I am jealous yeah. because we just yeah. got snow here yesterday, and it's very cold today. So I am envious. Yeah, you know, I had to get used to it. And I, I've been here 11 years. I was born in Canada, grew up in the U.S., and so I've still got the old imperial in my head. So I've still got to do conversions. Like right now, the temperature says 22 <laughs> Uh, and so I was like, okay, what is that? But I did find, so here's a little nugget. Uh, so I did find, um, I learned a very basic, not wholly accurate, but a very basic way to do the conversion, if anybody's interested. Just uh, from Celsius to Fahrenheit, double that number and add 30. It's oh. not perfect, but it gives you a bit of an idea. Yeah. So 22, double that, 44, add 30, it's 74. Oh, my gosh. So, oh, okay. That's, that has baffled yeah. me for years. I have never been able to figure out Celsius, yep. so I think you just broke the code for yep. me. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Again, it's not perfect, but it gives you like, okay, that's that's pretty warm. Yeah. You know, especially when you get out into the Kiwi sun, because we've, we've got, it's a special kind of sun here. And I don't know if it's because there's a wee bit of a hole in the ozone, but you go outside without a covering and you say, what is that sizzling? Oh, that's me. Oh. That's what's happening here. So, Yikes. Yeah. You, you got to really watch yourself with the Kiwi sun for sure. Well, it's 35 here. So I think I'd rather be sizzling, honestly. <laughs> But <laughs> <laughs> it's coming. I remember I grew up in Canada uh, in Winnipeg, uh, where Winnipeg was at one point. You can Google it. Uh, at one point, Winnipeg was colder than the surface of the moon. That's how cold it got in, in Winnipeg. Wow. Uh, but when summer came, summer was summer was our favorite day of the year. You yeah. know, <laughs> it's just the one day, but it was an amazing day and we all enjoyed it. Went out to the, to the lakes and everything. But nice. no, I know cold for sure. I grew up in the Midwest, so I spent many. In fact, I've, to this day, I've got frostbite in my hands and feet. And so they're ice cold all the time. When people shake my head, they're, they're like, are you dead? <laughs> because my hands are still so cold. So I was happy to come here and uh, and never be that cold again. Yeah. I don't blame you at all. I don't blame you at all. I've been yep. planning my winter getaways, but they haven't happened yet. So, so talk to us. Tell me. Tell us about you, who you are, what you write, where you came from. You have a really interesting career as a first a stand up comedian, a radio host, TV writer. Tell us about it. Yeah, all of that stemmed from the writing side. Uh, so like I mentioned, I grew up in, in Canada until I was nine years old. My father was a New Zealander, still is, uh, and but he had come to the U.S. in the late 60s. And, he, you know, and this, I guess, was sort of the time where you sort of showed up on the doorstep and knocked. And they're like, yeah, sure, come on in. Except the U.S. was like, nah, 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 we got a quota system. We're full up on Kiwis. Go to Canada. They'll take anybody. So we, he went up to Canada. I met my mother, but always wanted to be in the U.S. And so he uh, took us down when I was about nine. And so I was this chubby, red-haired Canadian boy thrown into the New Jersey school system. So I was lonely. <laughs> I was, uh, so I had to make up my own friends. And that, to some extent, you know, you take a look at some of the hardships, which you can kind of create something. I started writing stories. And so, um, and I guess creating worlds that, uh, that I felt more comfortable in. And, and that continued on through when I was, uh, you know, in my mid-teens or so. And I started I'd actually writing longer stories. And so, um, so I started writing like short stories as you do, and then sending those out. But this is back pre-internet because mm. I'm old, 
And, and back then, you should, have, you should have sent out what was called an SASE, a self-addressed stamped envelope. Oh, I remember so basically, those. I remember those well. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah, so you would send something out to Amazing Stories or something, but you would include an envelope in there so they could send it back, and you'd have a stamp on there. That way, when they rejected you, you were paying for the postage. Yep. <laughs> But it also took like months and months and months for that stuff to come back. These days, <laughs> the rejections come much faster. Yeah. Uh, or hopefully the uh, approvals. Uh, but so I got, and I, this is the bizarre logic I guess I had. Because that took so long and I sort of wanted some of that feedback or some of that love or whatever it might be, it made sense to me because I was a fan of stand-up comedy that if I wrote something that afternoon and got on stage and told these stories – you know, a little bit different than short stories as life stories and stuff. But if I wrote these stories, got on stage, then I'm published mm. in a, in a strange way. I'm published. And that's what got me to stand up comedy because I could sort of get that feedback and I could get people sort of invested in these stories. And I did that for a good couple of years um, until the market changed a bit uh, with stand up. What had happened was there was a, a lot of stand up comedy that was showing up on television. Uh, it was on everything. It was on USA Today. It was on A&E. Comedy Central uh, started coming up. And so fewer and fewer people were coming out to the clubs. And so I moved into radio. And that was still writing. You know, for as much as radio sounds like just people talking, there is a lot of planning and skill and, and arcs and things like this to it. So there was still a lot of construction to it. And then from there, hopped into television after about a dozen years or so. I worked at CNN. Uh, and then when we came here to New Zealand, I did a news comedy show, a live news comedy show here in New Zealand. Um, I was uh, one of the lead producers on that show. And again, all through along the way, I was, it's always been about the writing and how the writing had to change. You know, when you're on stage, if you want to tell a minute, two minute, three minute story, that's great. You can do that as long as you've got little, you know, punches along the way, right? Mm. Uh, then when I ended up getting into radio, that was a little bit shorter. Um, and, and I was also sharing a space with somebody else, which was in education. Uh, then when I got into television, you're writing even shorter. And there was a time when I was writing for HLN or Headline News, and you had to take... You had to take global stories and smash them down into about 13 seconds. And I tell you that if nothing can teach you an economy of words, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, okay, take the Middle East con uh, conflict and put that down into 14 seconds. Go. Yeah. And so that was a heck of an education. So all that along the way, I'd always been writing you know, my own stuff along the way. But I think all of that process helped me learn how to be a better writer. That's fascinating. Did you ever use your, well, first of all, stand-up comedy is terrifying to me. Like I, I'm, I'm a words person. I don't have this other, you know, life where I could do that. I would be terrified. And I've watched Mrs. Maisel and I saw what she went through. So no, but did you ever use that? Like the responses you got from, from the audience as kind of ways to edit your stories or change your story? Like, did you use that as feedback for your actual writing? Uh, yeah, less about the storyline. Sometimes like little bits and stuff like that. I have incorporated bits of stand-up that I could drop into stories, and I have done that over the years. I think it was more about the construction, and I was so fascinated by that. I used to <laughs> – I was uh, one of those hard-rocking kids in high school. I had the, you know, the Iron Maiden T-shirts, the black ones with the sleeves ripped off. I was that guy. But secretly on my cassette player, I had stand-up comedians. Mm -hmm. I used to listen to those guys all the time because I was fascinated by the construction of humor and, and comedy. 
And I learned this too on stage, especially, you know, you would do a joke one night, then do the next day. Well, why didn't that work as well? Sometimes it's the audience, sometimes it's your, your energy, but a lot of times it just came down to the construction of it. And it's so surprising how just word placement can turn huh, kind of line into a big laugh. And that was the education. And I guess, so I think what standup did for me, it helped teach me about, again, economy of words, but also about how humor, this voodoo thing, you can kind of manipulate that a bit because as you move bits and pieces around within that structure of a sentence, it can can change. It can, it, it's almost like, you know, we all know the, the structure of a joke where it's set up in punchline. Sometimes writing's like that. If you're going to do some humor writing, make sure that, that that particular word, the home run word, is at the end of the sentence. It's a little bit simplistic, but basically that can really help you out. Because if you do the home run word and you get a couple words after that, it kind of peters out. Hmm. Oh, that's super interesting. I love that. So when did you abandon all this other stuff and decide to just focus on novels? Um, I got fired. Okay. Oh, well, that'll do it, right? <laughs> Nothing like the universe telling you it's time to focus on your writing. Yeah, I saw it coming down the pike. Uh, so, buddy, because I was, I'm a big numbers guy, which helps out with some of the marketing, I guess. But I saw this over the last seven years working here in New Zealand, and it's a global thing. And I don't need to tell anybody this, but fewer and fewer people are watching television. Um, and even though when our show, we did seven years here in New Zealand, which is a, it's an amazing stretch. We had record numbers. We had the best numbers at seven o'clock that uh, the network had seen in almost 20 years. But then they ended the show. Uh, because of the dynamic was changing, television was changing to where it wasn't just about the Nielsen ratings. It wasn't about mm -hmm. the number of people watching. It was about how the stuff you were doing was being then parsed online and how that was doing, because everybody's trying to work out how the digital world works. And I think television's fault at this point, and I don't know the solution. If I did, I'd be a billionaire. But it's trying to take the TV paradigm and smash it into digital. And it's just not working. Nobody's making that work. If they could find another way to do it where they could take digital, have success there, and then parse it into television, then that would be probably the big thing. But basically, after seven years, and like I said, I saw this coming about a year ago, and then I ended up going hardcore onto the writing. I knew it was like, listen, this this is uh, <laughs> I've got to I've got to pull the lever on the ejection seat because, or it's going to be pulled for me, and it was pulled for me. And but I saw this coming at least a year ago, or more specifically, I saw it a couple of years ago, and it would have been about one year ago. Now I began the Kane series. I started writing that, and and I ended up writing three books in that ten months. Um, oh, wow. uh, leading up to it. And then, the, yeah, the last show day was uh, December 1st. Hmm. So tell us about the books. Yeah, it's funny. Um, in describing them, I cannot totally understand when people go like, what are you talking about? But basically, Cain is uh, about a wolf who's running through the woods when he gets bitten by this infected man. And the next day he wakes up and he's human. <laughs> so kind of a reverse werewolf story, because when the full moon comes out, he turns into a werewolf. But when the moons have a different phase, he turns into a dog. <laughs> he turns into a dog. Uh, and so the story, basically, the arc of the story is about Cain trying to discover, find out more about this man who bit him, the secrets behind this, because he wants to be a wolf again. 
because he misses those days of running free and naked through the woods. I mean, he could do that as a human, but he'd probably get incarcerated and very possibly frostbite because he was up in Canada. Yes, probably. So that's basically the story storyline behind this. Um, and and part of the process for me um, uh, in writing this was just creating this character. And so because uh, uh, as a writer, I'm not a plotter. I'm more of a, a pantser mm-hmm. or, you know, a discovery writer, people like to say, right? I'm fine with pantser. And so as long as I understand my characters and a bit of their motivations, I just let them sort of tell me the story. And that has been uh, has worked really well for me. And so I've got Kane and and one of the few. So Kane has turned into uh, a six foot seven French Canadian, in part because I found that very funny when I came up with the idea. Uh, and one of the things he can't do because he still has a bit of that animal brain is he can't work out how to drive. And so he's got this young woman named Imelda, who's a former criminal, maybe not so former, um, a bit of a getaway driver, and she ends up becoming his driver. And then as the story progresses, becomes more and more uh, invested in his story. And so they team up in what they call their pack of two. And they're trying to find out this secret to get Kane to be able to return home to his pack. Oh, very fun. Okay, I want to go back to the panther stuff in a minute because I love that term. First of all, I've never heard it. Um, I'm a recovering panther. So yeah, I want to talk about that. (laughs) But but I want to talk about like your novels are this combination of a lot of different genres, right? So how do you how do you seamlessly kind of incorporate them together to make your storytelling so unique, but also so enticing to people? There was a time when, and you've seen plenty of this, and there are, in, there's entire like cottage industries of people that will say, oh, this genre is doing really well. Maybe start writing to this. I tried that for a time to kind of write to a genre or write to a market. And unfortunately, I had a modicum of success, which told me that I was doing the right thing. I ended up getting optioned uh, uh, to be turned into a TV series. And that and that fell through his options many, many times do. And it took quite a while to get to the point where I realized that I wasn't really loving that, you know, mm-hmm. sort of prescribed writing. And it was my wife, of all things. I had come home uh, from my job at CNN and I was complaining, <laughs> as writers like to do. Because uh, at the time, James had just uh, done amazingly well with Fifty Shades of Grey. Mm-hmm. And, and there was a real pop- popularity at the time of like turning things into like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, or I think it was uh, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. So, so yeah. taking established stories and chucking the supernatural in there. And so I jokingly said to her, I, should, I said, Fifty Shades of Grey, I should make it Fifty Shades of Grey Matter and, and throw zombies in there. And she goes, do that. And I said, now I know that's stupid, you know, and she goes, no, do that. That one might sell. (laughs) My my wife is uh, Southern U.S., so she just tells her how it is. Mm -hmm. And I wrote that and I didn't have a lot. The thing was, it was the first time since I was a kid that I really was having a blast because I just kind of took the governors off and I just let it flow. And I had a real good time with it. And I started writing and I wrote it as like a five book serial. Um, And I self-published on Amazon. And so I put it out in August. And, you know, it got barely any attention. It was 2012. This was really early days of self-publishing. But I tell you what, September picked up a bit with the next one. And then by October, it launched and and this is before all this advertising there was no i didn't there wasn't really the social media sort of side of it it just went off and then by december of 2012 it became the number one comedy book on amazon and and i i started to think like 
I could write what I want to do, and there's people that are interested in reading this. And I think fundamentally for me, when I write stories, I don't think about all the constructs as much, and I don't think about, you know, let me incorporate this or that. I sort of write the stuff that I would like to read. And I know that's maybe a bit of a cheat or lazy, but I write the stuff that I want to read, and it, it seems to work, and I pull in stuff um, that I feel works within the story. I mean, you've got to stick within rules. It can't be something where you just you know go totally off left field. Sometimes in my writing, I do that, and I take that out when I'm editing. But you know, as long as it's with within the promise you're making to the reader, you know, you you do you are making a bit of a promise to the reader, maybe unspoken, but you're making a promise to the reader. As long as you're hitting that, they'll keep coming back. Yeah, I love that. And I hope that answered your question. No, it definitely does because I, you know, I I've been doing this for a long time too, and you know, I am writing in a genre that sometimes I, that. I love, but I do feel sometimes can, can stifle the creativity a little bit because you do have certain constructs that you're supposed to work in and you can't do certain things. And, you know, it's all about what the readers expect. And of course you want to give them what they expect and what you've promised them and all that. But I do love this idea of really kind of chucking all of those expectations and, and really writing what you love. I hear agents and editors at conferences talking to newer writers all the time. And, you know, I, I always cringe when I hear them say, you know, well, I think vampires are coming back or, you know, whatever. And it's like, okay, by the time, you know, someone completes a book and it's ready to publish, you're talking a year or two in, in traditional publishing, right? The tides are obviously going to turn and it's just, I don't know. I feel like it's giving like help making people spin their wheels a little bit, right? Just to, so some of these people in publishing can feel like they really know what they're talking about. It, it you know what I, not that they don't, uh, but yeah. I don't, I always, I have always told people, write what you love, whatever, whatever 100%. that is. And it could be that you love writing something that is very structured and, and in a specific genre. Yeah. Do that then. But if you love something else, then write something else because it's going to sell based on how the energy behind it, I think. Yeah. And if for no other reason, uh, here, here's something, no, nobody be surprised by writing is really hard. It's just really hard. When I, when I was writing this, the first three books of this series, um, I had a, a job I was doing 10 hours a day, 60 hours a week. And so I, my day started at 7.30, ended just after 7.30 because our show was at 7. So I had to get up at 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning to write. And you can't do that unless you've got that, that thing inside of you that you want to do it. If it's just prescribed like, oh, I've got to do this, you're going to run out of steam. Yeah. And that's really what it comes down to. I think success a lot of times comes down to it's got to be this font within you. If it feels more like a job, and it does feel like a job sometimes, but if you don't have that, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to get this out of me sort of thing, you're going to run out of steam. So I think that you, ha- I agree with you 100%. You've got to find that thing that you love to do. You've got to find that sort of style that you want to write because otherwise you're going to run out of gas. And when it is something that's coming from you, you'll, I feel that you'll never run out of gas. It's within you as much as breathing. And so that is in itself, that is a, a real source of power, just writing that thing you need to do and then never stopping. It's almost like there's a character in another series I write that he, he's 
bit of a dolt sometimes, but he has this philosophy that if he comes up to something impossible and just keeps doing his thing, eventually that other thing is going to give up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to some extent, that's what it is. It yeah. might take you two years, three years, five years, 10 years, whatever it might be. We've all heard stories about authors that it took them a decade or two decades to get there. I mean, Cormac McCarthy is a perfect, perfect example. He wrote books and books and books, and I think it was 15 years before he had people even realize that he was a hell of a writer. And then mm-hmm. people look back at his list. But I think you've got to find that thing that you want to do and serve that as that that fuel within you. And then you'll find your success. It just depends, I guess, on what you see your success might, what that might be. That might just be people reading your stories. And that's really enough. Yeah, exactly. It's different for everyone. But I, I do think people yeah. sometimes limit themselves and, and turn away from something that they might love just to because they have it in their head that they have to do it a certain way to get published. But you know what's you know funny? Uh, because the genre, the genre that I'm in, you mentioned vampire romance, I think. Mm-hmm. The genre that I'm in, there's a lot of romance with paranormal. Mm-hmm. And and mine isn't. Um, I have no plans. Depends on them. You know, you're a writer. It depends on the characters. They yeah. may decide otherwise. I have no plans for these two main characters to get together. They're just amazing friends. Um, I mean, there's a bit of a spark there, but he has a wolf wife that he wants to return to and he's committed to. And I had an amazing comment here just about a month or two ago. Uh, it was either on Facebook or it was on one of the Amazon reviews. And it was a woman who read a lot of this paranormal romance. And she said that she came into this thinking, oh, is this going to be, what is it? I don't even know all the structures, like friends to lovers, enemies to f- lovers. And all that. She was wondering what genre this was. And then she started to realize, oh, this, this isn't one of those. This isn't going to be a romance. And her comment was, what a relief. Mm-hmm. She was like, it was so great just to come into this story, even though she's a paranormal romance reader, she was like, I love the idea of that they wouldn't be forced together as lovers or friends or as lovers. And and so, yeah, for as much as there's those structures and as much as you want to prescribe something, even the people that come into that with his expectations, sometimes as long as it's a good story and as long as you're staying true to the characters, which is so important, yep. it's so important, staying true to the characters, I think people dig it, even if that wasn't what they were expecting. Yeah, totally true. So what is, what do you, how do you define success for you as a, as a writer? Um, <laughs> I, I think in some small part, some of the success just comes down to is if I'm having fun with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's nice to have the sales and it's nice to be, you know, up there and doing really well. That's great. That's gratifying. But I, the success for me is when I write a story and step back and go, that was really good mm-hmm. <laughs> because we all start books and you're the same as me. I don't know if you have the same process. Like I just started a book for here about uh, three weeks ago. And I have, you know, everybody has their writing process. And part of my writing process when I started a book is to go, I can't write. I'm no good at this. I'm awful. <laughs> I've been just, I've been fooling everybody. That, that big, every book starts that way. And it's almost like I'm surprised every time I sit down and write something new. It's just like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I sort of felt the same way as I started book three. And I remember that feeling. Uh, and then by the end of it, when you craft everything together and you get that story, and you have those moments that you think about when you're, when you're out shopping or something like that. That's the success for me. And then, of course, when I have people come back to me and, and, and reach out and say how this moment meant something to them or this character did something or this character, they can't stand this character. But again, they're invested in that character. Yeah. I had an amazing moment, an amazing moment. 
uh, if I could share with you Absolutely. from a reader. Yes. So, so uh, every now and then, uh, groups of people, they'll read the book, um, however many of them, in a various area, and they'll reach out to me and say, hey, listen, would you mind speaking with us uh, about this? And it's just sort of organic. It just started happening. And so I've had folks in the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. And, and so this one morning, I was writing book three at the time. I had just started. And things weren't just, you know, those mornings where it's like, oh, I just can't seem to. I'm just in my head too much. I can't seem to get this straight. I had sort of the structure, but I didn't want to want, I don't know what I wanted to do with this character or this. Yeah. So I put it aside and I spoke to this group in the UK. And there's this woman, I don't know if she was from New Brighton. She might have said that. Um, and But maybe I think it's romantic, this idea she's from New Brighton. And I always think when I say that out loud, that somebody from the UK goes, that's not romantic. That's, <laughs> I don't know. But so in my head, she was from New Brighton. And she says to me, real lovely, she says to me, I'm really enjoying this series. I'm not going to do the accent. She goes, I'm really enjoying this series, uh, but uh, I can't wait to hear more about Cain. When, because what happens was, so when he turns into a base, he turns from a wolf into a teenage boy, and this French-Canadian couple bring him in for a year. And over that year, he grows into a six-foot-seven French-Canadian. But, so, but for that year, basically... Instead of raised by wolves, a wolf was raised by humans. So for that year, he spent with this French-Canadian couple. And this woman says to me, she says, I, I can't wait to hear about what this couple did and how they taught them about humans and, and how the, the sort of knowledge and wisdom they gave to him um, uh, when they were raising him for that year. And I said to her, that's funny you say that because that's exactly what I'm doing in book three. That's it's amazing that you have said those things because that is what I'm doing mm. <laughs> in my book now. So basically that sort of desire and interest and appetite that she had was exactly the inspiration, that sort of moment I needed because I look back now, I go, well, of course it should have been that. Of course that's what had to happen by book three. And it was it was really thrilling and it was really kind of emotional for me too, this sweet relationship between this couple and this, you know, this young man turning into a grown man. So and I've since actually become a bit of a Facebook friends with her. It but that it that's that's really gratifying. We talk about mm -hmm. this success, right? We talk about those little ticks in the box that make us feel like we're doing well. The idea that somebody was sort of so invested in these characters in this story that she sort of helped and became part of the process. I mean, could there any, could anything be better than that? That was, that was an amazing moment yeah. and one I will cherish forever. I love that. Hi, this is Julian, the producer for the Get Writing podcast. Zencaster is an extremely important part of our workflow on this show. Podcasting has you working with a wide range of people who all have different computer and office setups, different levels of comfort with technology, and different levels of time and patience. Zencaster takes this big logistical headache and makes it utterly trivial. No more grappling with recording software, waiting for files to be delivered, losing files, none of that. Log in using your browser and start recording a high-quality podcast right away. Record studio-quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. Feel a sense of zen, knowing Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. If you've ever thought about podcasting and thought that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are over. Zencaster is an all-in-one podcasting platform. You can create your show all in one place and then distribute it to Spotify, Apple, and all the other major destinations. Go to Zencaster.com pricing and use our code writing and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experience as we do for all of our podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. 
I love that. And all right, so we're going to talk about process now because you opened sure. the door. And I love what you said about yeah. having that moment at, every, at the beginning of every book where you think you can't do this. For me, that happens in the middle of the book where I'm floundering around. I don't know where the hell I'm going next. And I'm like, really? I, why did I think I could write another book? Because clearly I've lost the ability to do this. <laughs> right. so, it's so awful. <laughs> yeah. How do you get out of that mindset? You know, um, I go back to that other character I mentioned. Sometimes you just got to be too, for me, I'm saying this about me, you just got to be too dumb. I, I just keep pushing through. Um, I, I do find that when I get to those moments where I'm just like, I don't know what to do next, I just start writing. I just, and I might be cutting some of this out later, but every now and then you do find a bit of a path, a bit of a nugget. You just got to do the, do the sentences. You got to do the lines. You just keep going for as much as sometimes. And it hurts, man. Sitting down, you're looking for any excuse. You open up the email or, oh, the dog needs to go for a walk or I should really clean the kitchen. (laughs) My house is never cleaner than when I'm on deadline. (laughs) 100%. Hundred percent, but it. But I just find, and I, uh, I describe it on occasion of just get that clay together. Yeah, and you know what? Because, and one of the greatest things, and I've only just started really getting this to my head. Because, like I said, I'm about a third of the way through book four. Is it's okay for the first draft to suck? In fact, there's plenty. You take a look at other uh, other authors; they'll say, "No, first drafts are terrible." And so, with, when I've got that in my head, it's like I'm not doing perfection here. I'm just getting the clay together, and I just smash all this stuff together. And when I get to the end of it, then I can start to mold it. And when I have that in my head, it's a lot easier. Yeah. But I do. I, I'll sit down sometimes when I'm really struggling, and I have those moments all the time. Everybody does. But you just force yourself to write a sentence. Just do one sentence today. And if nothing else, that really, I feel that helps my head and it can help other folks' head. You write that one sentence because, you know what, you did, you move the needle on something. Yeah. It's those days where you don't do any writing where the next day you feel awful. Oh, I do. Yeah. I just feel like, oh, I've just stopped. So just write one sentence. And every now and then, even on those really tough days, that one sentence has turned into a paragraph. And, I, and, and I'm sure you had the same experience on those days where you just force yourself to do it. You come away like, wow, that was a hell of a day. You push through it and you end up having an amazing, amazing writing session. So you just got to get in there, write that one sentence, which sometimes turns into a paragraph or sometimes turns into a page, which sometimes can turn into five, six pages. Yeah, it's totally true. I just had one of those moments where I was like, oh, this scene is terrible. I don't know what these people are doing. There is no point to this. And I just kept writing. And then this little, I don't even know what it was, this little spark of like, oh, that's why. And then it went in a whole different direction. But you just got to sit with it. You got to sit there, right? Even when you just want to get the hell up. That's the coolest thing. Yeah. It's like so I'm a big believer in the subconscious, and like the subconscious is almost like like some extra person, almost like you have a, a, either a familiar or maybe if you're a science fiction fan, you have a, you know you're the host to <laughs> to some other creature because it's still working on that. And maybe you just got to sort of get out there and clear the road, and then they sort of insert that thing in. So yeah, yeah you just keep going at it because that is an amazing feeling. Yeah. And it's funny too because when you look back, you go like, wow. That all starts to make sense. I didn't plan that route at all, but it all makes sense. And I think that there is that little bit in your subconscious that goes like, yeah, we got this covered. You just do, just get there and put your stupid words on the page and we'll get our stuff in there. Yeah, for sure. I have a mentor who always says that writing a first draft is like putting a tree through a meat grinder. And it's totally true, right? It's, they're just terrible. I, I love yeah. editing more, but once you, you know, once you get, the words out and the general direction out, I find it much easier to go back and make it way better. 
right? I've, I've grown to like editing because I do feel that you shine it up. It's tough on deadline sometimes because you feel that extra pressure. Yeah. But I've grown to really enjoy the editing because when you sit down and get into that scene, you can get... You, I have narcolepsy, so there's times where I get too focused onto something, which is almost like an ADHD thing, maybe. But I'll get too focused. Like, I've been staring at this paragraph for an hour. <laughs> I need to move on. Uh, but, but that paragraph is quite good after that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I want to go back to, I want to go back to your superpower, which is what you call narcolepsy. But first I got to go back to pantsing because we talked about this earlier and yeah. we haven't come back to it yet. What did right. you call it? What was the phrase you used? Uh, yes, it's uh, you're either pantser or a plotter. But you use a different phrase for pantser. What was it? Uh, discovery writer. Discovery writer. Was I've the never heard that's that. The okay. That's the fan. Okay, yeah, I've never heard that one. Because there's some, there's some people that don't like the idea of being a pantser. It's like, oh, whatever. It's it's, fine. it's funny. There's such a there's always a debate, and it you know I'm in the mystery writing community. There's such a debate on plotting and pantsing, and I was always a pantser, right. and then. I, you know, wrote myself into a lot of corners on deadline. And finally I had to realize that I had to become a little bit of a plotter. I'm still not the type of yep. plotter where I have to have every scene plotted out before I start. I can't write like that. So right. do you have any general idea of where you're going or do you really just sit down and write? No, I mean, I think uh, a good friend of mine, um, you know, he's, a huge author and he's sort of been somebody who's been a good buddy of mine for many years. And so I sort of take a bit of what he does, um, because it's less pressure. So I start to write and usually about a quarter of the way through or whatever it might be, then I can sort of not plot out as much, but structure out the next sort of couple of scenes rather than the entire book. Yeah. Um, I sort of just go, I know like, like right now there's something happening with Amelda and Kane. I know they got to get to the border and from there they got to get to this facility. And so I, I get that in my head. Those are the next two sort of um, set pieces, right? And then I, I start to get into that. But once I get into that, I start to realize, oh, this should happen there. This should happen there. But then I sort of feel like I have a little bit of a path. And, and I've had some just amazing moments where things I hadn't, and you're, I'm sure you're the same way, where things I hadn't even planned just happen within a scene. And it's almost like you pull your hands off. Like you talk about when you're writing and that little like, oh, where did that come from? That is, man, that, I don't know. That, that is an amazing, exhilarating feeling. Um, I, when I used to be in radio, um, I did that for a lot of years. I got to interview all these rock stars and that. And Tom Petty once said to me, name dropping, right? Oh my gosh, Tom Petty once Tom said Petty. to me, he was so great. He was so sweet. But he said to me, he said that, because um, people would always ask him, what's your inspiration come from? And he'd been doing it for so many years. And his answer yeah. was just basically, they just come down as these gifts. Yeah. It's not like you can go out and pluck it out. They, but they come down as he gifts. You have to open yourself up. You have to create environments where those gifts can come on down. And that's what comes from just pounding away and doing the writing. But when they come down, man, it's it, it's almost it feels almost like a religious experience sometimes. It's pretty great. Yeah. Elizabeth Gilbert talks about that, too. I actually just heard her say that. She, so she's written nonfiction. She's written fiction. I just heard her say that she doesn't remember writing any of her fiction that it just kind of was channeled through her. You know, and and unless you're a writer, I think uh, you probably think that is flaky. That <laughs> but it really is. It's I had I had a moment uh, of another series where I was writing, and I know all this sounds really goofy, 
trust no. me. But I want to just stuff. show you how, how this thing. Yeah. So there's these two characters who are sneaking into this headquarters, right? Um, the, it's like this sort of Facebook uh, sort of place. And there's an Ezeal headquarters. And they got to sneak underneath through this tunnel area. But the tunnel, the floor of the tunnel is electrified. So the two of them, um, uh, they're kind of frenemies in a way, but the two of them hop onto Roombas, <laughs> these electric vacuum cleaners, and they're riding these Roombas so that they don't have to touch the floor, right? But through no construction, through no desire, suddenly one of the characters gets in his head that since they're going inside, they're being chased by the bad guys, they're going into this evil lair, there's this electrified floor, but now that they're on these Roombas going side by side, he wants to go faster than the other one. <laughs> he wants to beat the other guy inside. In his head, it made sense that, yes, there's death all around them, but if this is turning into a race, he wants to win, and he pulls off a sock and throws it up forward so the Roomba chases after it faster. And it turned into a race. And it was a, and it's a real small moment, but it, I had never planned that. I didn't even say, oh, I should do this. It literally, as I'm typing, this begins to happen. And you just feel electrified. It's an amazing feeling. And that's one moment of hundreds that have had. Amazing feeling. But like you were saying, you know, like we were talking about before, you do have to leave yourself open to that. You, you, know, you don't get too, you don't want the governor's on too strong. Yeah. And who knows? Maybe if I wrote that, I went, that's too stupid. I'll take it out <laughs> in editing. But in that writing process, the first draft, do it. Yeah. Let, let your head go. See what happens. Totally. hundred percent. So, all right. So you are a former stand-up comic. You're a funny guy anyway. Do you find it, is it just your voice that you inject humor into your writing or do you have to kind of work at that? No, I, th I think it's, and it's, it's difficult. You know, I always love humor because I find humor just voodoo. And as that nine-year-old, when, when I was a little nine-year-old, humor was a sense of control. So, because when you've got somebody laughing, that changes the power dynamic, right? Because, you know, you get bullies in school, you make the bully laugh, you're now in the lead because mm -hmm. they're dancing to your music, right? And so maybe some of that, that sort of desire to be funny came from self-preservation. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But as I'm writing, um, like... And I talk a little bit on occasion talking about humor writing. People say, how do, you know, how do you be funny? And it's like, I don't think, for me, my, my perspective, if you're trying to be funny, that isn't necessarily the way you go about it. There are moments that humor finds. There's a moment where two people are interacting or there's a scenario where something can be funny. And you sort of just fan those flames a bit. A lot of that comes between human interaction. Um, but, but I don't prescribe humor into stuff. And my brain sort of goes, you know, it'd be funny if this person said this, or this would be funny if uh, this particular thing happened. But like Terry Pratchett talked about how he, it was like the third book in Discworld. It was really the first one he kind of really liked because he realized that before that he was using the plot to support the jokes. Mm -hmm. And by the third book, he was using the jokes to support the plot. Yeah. And I think that's really smart. There are plenty of times I write a funny line and I go, that is, and this might be the funniest line ever written, but you take a look and go, is that servicing the character? Right. Is that servicing the plot? And if it's not, take it out. Use it somewhere else, maybe down the road. It doesn't mean you have to delete it forever, but if it doesn't service the plot, if it doesn't feel right in the moment, if it takes away the tension when you need the tension to be there, but sometimes humor can actually help with the tension because it relieves it and then you can go right back into it again. Yeah. But, it's, but the humor has got to serve the characters. Totally. And you can tell, like, I think you get to a point where 
you can, it, it's like an intuition thing, right? You could tell where a line's really just going to hit right. And it's, you know, appropriate for yeah. that character. And it's, you know, just adding something to the, to the story. And the one thing I will say is don't overcook it. Hmm. Um, so what the, the part that, that heartbreaks me sometimes, because when somebody writes a funny line or a funny moment and they just sort of like, <laughs> they, they sort of just swim in the moment of it. It's like, no, 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 just sort of do that. Move on. It's, it's always, I feel at least with my writing, it's always more effective. It's, it's much funnier that way. In fact, it gets uh, a couple. I've got two narrators because I have uh, an audiobook coming out here in just the next week. I'm very excited about very it. Cool. the first audiobook. And so, Podium has turned, yeah, Kane into uh, the first three into audiobooks. So, the first one comes out here on January 16th. And I interviewed a bit of a different style. I went, I interviewed both of my narrators. Mm-hmm. And I've sort of turned this into social media pieces that I can put up and have them talk about the book. And both of them talked about while they were reading something and sort of like laughing. Uh, you know, they'd read through something. And my main character um, with Kane, uh, Tim Campbell, he said that he would say a line. And then because he's in character doing, you know, Kane, this French Canadian, six foot seven French Canadian, the line would sort of come around and swing and hit him after he'd said it. And he'd start laughing. And, and I think that's that's almost perfect, right? Because if you sat there and just really got in and sort of just grinded into the joke, this is a funny moment, you'd ruin it. And so the idea that a line would drop and he'd after only, only after he'd said it, he realized how funny that was. That's I find that the perfect kind of humor for this stuff I write. Yeah, that's very cool. All right, one more process question. Um, world sure. building. How do you how do you approach world building? I, I'm presuming that this is a lot of thinking about the world these characters live in because it's not just the regular world yeah it's it's the longer you write the more in the series you write the more you got to take notes (laughs) i learned that the hard way i learned that the hard way in the previous series but you know the world building for me uh I'll admit is kind of selfish sometimes. Like, so when I came up with this concept, the concept behind Kane actually came from another book I was writing, was writing, it was a funny book sort of about the news industry. And I would interview a bunch of news people to kind of get more of a feel for it. I was in the news industry, but I interviewed some people I knew. And so the line I kept on hearing was about what makes a story. And dog bites man, that's not a story. But man bites dog, that's a story. The idea being is something unusual has to happen. So you might have heard that expression before. But that got stuck in my subconscious. Man bites dog, that's a story. And that was sort of the genesis of this. And so it turned into, you know, uh, this sort of reverse werewolf. So where this infected soldier bites a wolf, he turns into a human. But so in building that particular world and those rules, I'll be honest, I didn't I don't think I've ever read a werewolf book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've read one monster book, and that was Mary Shelley's uh, Frankenstein. Yep. I, I'm not a big monster guy. And so so as I'm constructing this world in a very selfish way, I was saying to myself, I don't want to wait 28, 29 days for him to ah, turn into a werewolf. <laughs> I want more fun along the way. Yeah. So I started to say to myself, like, what can I do differently? And then I started to question things about the genre as much as I knew from it for movies. Why does it have to be a full moon that he turns into a werewolf? Well, I mean, it's still moonlight. And so I started thinking, well, what if he turned when it was a half moon or a quarter moon? Well, maybe he would turn into something else. And since it was a lesser moon, maybe it was a lesser wolf. And of course that became dogs. So if it's like a little sliver of a moon, he turns into a tiny dog. Or if it's a half moon, he turns into a pug. People love the pug. That's awesome. And that was sort of the, 
how I was doing the world building, to be honest, because I wanted to have fun with the writing. And I created that. And so, yeah. And then then once I get that bit of that structure, like I was saying, you got to take notes along the way (laughs) after a while. But yeah, I think the structure and the world building I do, staying within certain parameters, right? Um, Because it all takes place in here. In, in the world is just like a little five or 10% of that supernatural that, that may or may not be happening out there. Mm. But yeah, the world building just comes from the desire to really enjoy myself when I'm writing the story. I love that. That's very cool. And yes, you're right about taking notes. I have book Bibles for all my series, but unfortunately I'm one of those people who doesn't always keep up with them. And so the current book I'm writing, I realized two things, uh, two errors I had made in the past two books because I hadn't documented something. And now right. I can't remember for the life of me what's, you know, one of my secondary characters, some of the physical attributes. So now I'm going back through old books to try to see if I describe this person. And let me tell you, it's a waste of time. So you're right. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Scrivener, Scrivener has, and I, I don't know. use as much as I used to. I, mean, I know. They've got all this little, like, you can put all the character I notes know. and the photographs and that. I know. But usually there are when some I, editors. You, usually when I think of that stuff, I'm on deadline. And I'm like, yeah, as soon as I'm turning this book <laughs> in, I'm going to go and put all this stuff in Scrivener. And then when I'm done the book, I'm like, I don't want to look yeah. at this thing ever again. So it doesn't You're happen. Exactly right. Yeah. There's some editors that will, like, one of the first editors I used, she was really comprehensive. She talked about, you know, put all the character names. It was really helpful because I duped a name. Um, and then she put just a scenario. So I think there's some editors that can help with that. Obviously, you have to pay a little bit more for that. But, no, it's uh, it's funny. I end up writing a previous series. Um, halfway through the series, the main character dies. Uh, well, sort of. He's killed. Uh, sort of. Uh, and he turns into this ghost that doesn't remember his past, and he decides he wants to be a detective. <laughs> cool. So he's a ghost detective, which to me was really fun. And again, fun. a little bit lazy, because since he was a ghost detective and didn't know anything about it, and I didn't know that much about being a detective, he could make mistakes all along the way, because I didn't know all the rules around that stuff. But as that progressed, and stuff started to build, and rules started to present themselves, I had to start writing that stuff down, because it got, not complicated, but complex enough where I didn't want to violate that. Yeah. And thankfully... Um, I've got beta readers who are amazing to me. They're amazing, these uh, beta readers of mine, because they know my stories better than me. And I get have one of them come back and say, oh, you, you can't do this with this because you know that in book two this happened. And so you got to make sure it's like, oh, great. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yes. And I'll go in and fix that. So beta readers, you know, having that little team together, as much as it takes years to build sometimes, but having that team together is priceless. Yeah, 100%. All right. So talk to me about what you call your writing superpower. Narcolepsy. Yeah. So narcolepsy, and I'm surprised, I guess I, I, narcolepsy has been a bit of a punchline or was some time ago, but people just could have like thunk their head goes to the desk. And so there's various levels of narcolepsy. Uh, narcolepsy just means you're sleepy all the time in short. And it just depends on where you are. There's simply of this cataplexy to where, um, they have narcolepsy, but this extra thing to where if they, if there's like a loud sound or if there's a really intense emotional moment, they'll lose muscle tone and they to the point where they'll actually fall to the floor. It's mm-hmm. kind of dangerous. I thankfully don't have that, but I fall asleep when I've been driving, not while driving, like get to a stoplight and realize, you know, because of the honking mm-hmm. <laughs> that I've fallen asleep. Uh, but I discovered this when I was in my mid to late 20s or so. I ended up getting diagnosed with narcolepsy. 
And it was great to actually have the name for that little demon, right? I always knew that I was, I felt sleepy and I assumed, because it was only my perspective, I assumed everybody kind of felt this way. Um, but somebody once described narcolepsy to me as saying, stay up for 30 hours, now go to work. And uh, then now come home, make dinner, and now sit down and talk with your spouse after dinner. And, and so I guess that's what this is, what I have. But like I said before, once I had a name for it, after some of that the bitterness <laughs> around it, like, why do I have to have this? I started to realize that I think that, you take a look at the stories I write, I think that a lot of these stories stem from this bit of a dream state that I'm in. Like when you take a look, and if you're lying down and going to bed at night, and you're just in bed, and just as you're sort of falling asleep, you get those amazing ideas. You think, oh, I should write that down. Oh, that's really, really good. Maybe it's a plot idea or a character or a, or a, or a story idea. And then you wake up the next morning, and you didn't write it down, mm. and you don't remember it. <laughs> yeah. That sort of dream state that I'm talking about, I'm in that about 80, 85% of my day. Wow. And so I think that it is, it is a source in large part of my creativity. You know, like we were talking before, you've got to make sure you kind of herd the cats a bit, but I, I find it as a superpower, someplace where a lot of this creativity comes from, because like I mentioned, I'm in that dream state most of the day. Right now, as you and I are speaking, to, uh, you and I are speaking. That's fascinating. And what a way to, to flip something that could potentially for a lot of people be a negative on its head. Yeah, it's almost like taking that control back. And so maybe that was a bit of my control freak thing. Yeah. Um, but I just accepted the fact that this is always going to be with me. I can either be kvetching about it the entire time or just try and find some way to, to put a put a bridle on it yeah. <laughs> and ride it. And that's kind of what I've done. I love that. That's very cool. Very cool. So what's next for you? I know you got an audiobook coming out. Uh, yep, yeah, the audiobook coming out uh, January 16th. The next one comes out after that. Um, then uh, right now I'm writing book four. Um, the next one will be book five. Um, there is some, and I hate to, to put it out and say anything because you never know if that puts the kibosh on anything, but there is some interest from some production sides that may want to do something more with it. I'm just not thinking too much about it. Awesome. Uh, we'll see, because I know a lot of times those interests can fall through, even when you get to the point of being optioned, which I have in the past, um, that stuff can fall through. Um, so then the next story, uh, I've got a couple that are sort of competing, you know, they kind of come in and you got to kind of keep them at bay a bit. And I, and I don't feel bad about that because I know that it's down there cooking at the moment. Um, but, I have learned one thing, I guess, because I talk about sort of being more of a bit of a cowboy when it comes to writing, is just sort of staying within the genre that I'm doing to some extent, um, you know, the supernatural side, which is thankfully it's wide open. Um, but like I, I'd written uh, a book, like I mentioned, called Live Shot, which was a thriller comedy, which I really, really liked, but it wasn't what my readers expected. Mm -hmm. So thankfully, I like writing supernatural humor. That's great. And so whatever is next will still be within that genre. I just have to find something that I'm really into, something that really goes, bah, and jumps into my head. And I'm thrilled about sitting down to write again. And so there's a couple ideas, like I was saying, there's a couple ideas bounce, bouncing around there. Um, and it just, I'll let them cook for a while, the subconscious, and we'll see which one wins. Are you going to keep the Kane series going as, as long as people are wanting it? I was initially planning on three. Um, I didn't want this to turn into something, and this is no slight to anybody else, but I see some folks that write, you know, 18, 25, 41. I saw one series with 41. 
And as long as they're still really digging it and doing it, rather than just writing something, because we all know as writers, you get rid of series, you'll make some money. Mm-hmm. I do feel that this is a five-book series now. I, I know what the next, this book I'm doing is going to be. And because of the last book, because something fun really happened in the last book, I was like, oh, that's going to be, that's going to take me to the end in book five. I feel that if I were to stretch that farther, and who knows, my characters might decide that they don't know they don't want to finish up. But I feel that if I were to go beyond that, that I might be sort of, you know, trying to get blood from a stone a bit. So the plan is to do five. Um, and who knows, um, there might be something more after that. But the plan is to do that, that five. I'll have that done by mid-year. And uh, yeah, and then move on to something else. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to see what you're going to do next. And we're sending all the good vibes that you get optioned and that it goes through this time. Um, And thank you so much for being here. It was a really fun conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And good luck to your writing, to everybody else listening. Just keep plugging away at it. Just keep plugging away at it. Eventually that immovable force will get out of your way. Absolutely. Well, that's it, friends. I hope you had as many laughs as I did from this talk. My biggest takeaway was the part where we talked about how if we just sit with the work long enough, those downloads are going to come. Those little intuitive nudges that send our story in the right direction. It's just magic and it's here for us. And like Dick said, we have to just open ourselves up to it. So I love that. I'd love to hear what your takeaway is on this episode. Send me a DM on Instagram and let me know, or head over to kateconti.com and send me a message there. And if you could subscribe, rate, review the podcast, I would really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week.